Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the disconnect between the richest man in the world buying a public media company and taking it private, and his pledge that he is doing so in the service of a functioning democracy. Joining us to discuss Elon Musk's $44 billion purchase of Twitter is David Carroll, a professor of media design at the New School and director of its Design and Technology MFA program, which explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry and education. His research and analysis examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media and journalism. We will speculate how soon Donald Trump will return to Twitter under Musk, even though the former president who was banned from Twitter for inciting the January 6th insurrection said he won't rejoin because he has his own social media platform, Truth Social. But like a lot of Trump's business enterprises, it is heading for bankruptcy. Then we look into the right-wing project underway to, as Steve Bannon suggested, deconstruct the administrative state following the Supreme Court's attack on the Occupational Safety Health Administration and now an unqualified Federalist judge appointed by Trump taking authority away from the Center for Disease Control to make critical policy during a pandemic. Joining us is Lawrence Gostin, Director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and the University Professor at Georgetown University. He's the author of the new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future, and we will discuss his article at the New York Times, No Matter How You Feel About Masks, You Should Be Alarmed by This Judge's Decision. Then finally, we'll examine the ramifications of the recent Supreme Court decision that Puerto Ricans don't have constitutional rights to some federal benefits and speak with Christina Ponce Kraus, a professor of legal history at Columbia Law School. Raised in Puerto Rico, she writes about the constitutional history of American territorial expansion and the political status of Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. She's the co-editor of Foreign in a Domestic Sense, Puerto Rico, American Expansion, and the Constitution, and we will discuss how this case is both a big deal in terms of what it decided, but more so for what it opens the door to. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, David Carroll, a professor of media design at the New School and director of its Design and Technology MFA program, which explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry, and education. And his research and analysis examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media, and journalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Carroll. Thank you so much. So thanks for joining us, David. And today, the world's richest man, who, according to Forbes magazine, Elon Musk is worth $273.6 billion. And he, in taking over Twitter today, or buying Twitter and taking it private today, he said free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with the company and the community of users to unlock it. So how do you feel about this, David? Are you worried, for example, as many are, that uh, Donald Trump will be brought back to Twitter? Well, I mean, to step back even, the the dissonance between this concept of strengthening democracy by the concentration of power ever more into a single human being, um, that I think is um, the aspect of it that I'm 
struggling to get my head around is is how uh, freedom is advanced um, where an individual becomes all the more powerful over a platform which you know does have the capability of giving voice or taking away a, a voice of a president. Um, so, um, and I no noticed at least uh, that, you know, whether it's true or not, uh, Trump said that he won't return to uh, Twitter because he has his own social platform now, although apparently he hasn't posted to his own platform in two months. But certainly it it does raise the specter of how Twitter will be used differently in the next upcoming election. Um, and also for someone like me who has been on Twitter, I think since about 2008, so have experienced, you know, it's ch changes. If it does mean that it's um, returning to the way it once was, um, then it will certainly be a, a diminished experience because the, the, the usefulness and the impact of the platform has uh, grown and improved, especially since um, people started to be in, introspective and critical about technology, um, you know, r roughly around the time of the 2016 election. But the idea that this man is what he's spending $44 billion to take the company private, meaning that it won't have a board of directors, it won't have shareholders, it won't have anybody but Musk in charge, right? And there'll be no oversight, no regulators? Yeah, a significant moment in the history of technology business because it is a privatization um, of, of significant proportions, but done so, you know, somehow in the spirit of the public. But um, I, it's, a, it's, a, it just, it's, it's so incongruent to me that um, the public is served by further concentration of power and in and, and this pr private takeover um, because Elon Musk, you know, will certainly make the company in his own image similarly to his many other companies. Um, and it's, it's, it seems like uh, an incredible aspiration of megalomania to imbue all of these different sectors with um, the image of, of one persona. And as a Twitter user, um, Musk is, you know, very Trump-like himself, and is not a model user of, of you know ex exemplary behavior that makes the experience a positive contribution to public discourse. So, um, you know, Musk is a kind of Trump-like figure uh, in the way that the the persona and the um, legions of fans that enable uh, it almost into a lifestyle brand uh, is something that we're seeing here, M meaning there's a segmentation of people who want uh, an autocrat to take over the Internet and 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 doesn't want shared governance, actually. That's what's alarming is is the people who want this. Well, we don't know that much about his politics, except that I suppose he's a libertarian like his friend Peter Thiel, the other billionaire from Silicon Valley who's supporting a couple of Trump candidates, the one in uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio for the Senate and Blake Masters for the Senate in um, Arizona. Is it possible that that's where he's at? I mean, that's the only evidence we have that he that he's a sort of, I don't know, reckless libertarian. His use of Twitter, as you just pointed out, has been even worse than Trump in some respects because he he called the British guy who rescued those Thai schoolboys from an underwater cave in Thailand a pedophile without any evidence. That's not exactly responsible behavior. Yes, um, and so we wonder, you know, how much of this will just be an expression of the whims of the owner you know, so for example, there was an account that was tracking the uh, private jet of Elon Musk, and you know, will that account be still allowed to operate, um, even though the owner has the full legal wherewithal to just make arbitrary and capricious decisions? Which again is sort of seemingly the opposite of 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 what he, you know he claims to be solving—that somehow 
he has a more righteous vision um, that won't make exceptions to himself. Um, it's also been observed, um, you know, already that the liability of concentrating Twitter in one person's power, um, you know, has an impact for his other businesses. So, for example, we know that he's opening a factory in China and wants to sell many uh, Teslas in China. So, you know, similar to the way we've seen a Apple have to make compromises to appeal to the Chinese government, you know, at what point is Twitter's policies going to slam against the other business interests of Elon Musk, which, you know, are, are even leveraged in, in the deal, as I understand it. And again, I'm speaking with David Carroll, who's a professor of media design at the New School and director of its Design and Technology MFA program, which explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry, and education. And his research and analysis examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media, and journalism. So... He's apparently doesn't like uh, Musk, doesn't like the current CEO, Agrawal, who he actually recently likened him to Joseph Stalin. However, he does apparently like the former CEO, Jack Dorsey. So it almost feels like some of this is personal, where he's saying, you know, he wants to get rid of the entire board and uh, that they failed. What's all that about, do you think? It remains to be seen, but again, um, it's you know an incredible illustration of a winner-take-all society and structure that um, the wealth accumulated, you know, probably arguably originating back to um, you know his father's apartheid mining interests have just been um, le leveraged and leveraged over and over, you know, from the initial startups that led to um, the um, PayPal and then this being sold to eBay, which really, as you mentioned, Peter Thiel and e Elon Musk and others gave them even more le leverage to capture more and more influence and control across industries. So this sort of ability of a tech titan to grow to such power so quickly um, is is just a, a story of of concentrating wealth. And now with Twitter, it's moving directly into the information space. And so, you know, how is Musk going to manipulate markets uh, with the um, his own co conduct or the uh, tolerate, t tolerating uh, behavior that, you know, is, you know, is, goes um, way up against the S SEC's ability to, you know, regulate things. So the Wild West that he seems to want to rekindle um, is going to have implications and i don't know how it's going to support the main business model of twitter which is an advertising business model which has been sometimes you know done better than others in certain years and so how is the company gonna twitter as its own you know be a good business if they're gonna have to backpedal some of the progress they've made in making the platform safer for advertising well, when he says he's going to unlock the potential, I mean, Twitter has not turned a profit for eight of the last 10 years. It has 217 million daily users, which, of course, is nothing compared to Facebook. Uh, but it does have some clout in as much as political leaders and celebrities and industry leaders do seem to favor it. So this seems to be a move on, on his part, on Elon Musk's part, about power and influence as opposed to money. It's not exactly, it doesn't look like this is going to be a huge money maker for him. Indeed. Uh, that what seems tr troubling maybe that a sort of new Gilded Age titan can accumulate so much wealth and power that, that significant influence machines, amplification machines, you know, can be run at their whim, not even um, coupled to a business imperative. So, um, it remains to be seen what kind of force will be exerted by the new own owner and when he, what he means by unlocking its business potential. Because as far as I, the way I understand digital advertising to work, it's moving in the opposite direction. It's, it's, it's moving towards 
uh, safe, safe and safer places to advertise, not more and more reckless ones. Well, that was what Obama said the other day at Stanford in his, uh, I thought, very, very interesting speech. I wish he would have made it a few years ago, where he basically pointed out that the social media is exacerbating social tensions in this country and is appealing to the worst uh, impulses of humanity. Yeah, and that's the interesting um, element to Musk's plans to reform the software itself somehow. Um, as he states, we don't know what he means specifically, but the relationship between, um, you know, d does he mean it's a freedom of speech platform or does he really mean it's a freedom of reach platform? And, uh, you know, does he equate amplification with speech and how does he reconcile the tensions therein. Um, so that is a question that we will have to see and remains to be seen. And then in addition to that, e Europe and the same time, the European Union is moving towards its new regulation of the tech industry, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which will have implications as to Elon Musk's plans to to, to change Twitter, it, it will probably have to be compliant with the new requirements that uh, the European Union is modeling now. So that'll be interesting, too. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, David Carroll, this is really about how money talks, isn't it? Because I think the board, even though there may have been resistance, and I'm sure the CEO, who obviously uh, Elon Musk hates him, or he's vilified him and compared him to Joseph Stalin, they probably had no choice because shareholders wanted the cash premium, right? There's money to be made, right? In, indeed, there's even a fiduciary duty probably that can't leave money on the table. And so we've built a system that is uh, very susceptible to capture by characters like Musk, um, where there, if, if he can come up with enough money, he can capture control that everything is for sale. And this is just an illustration of what we mean by that. Literally, you know, tw Twitter can be bought and then um, the way that it shapes international conversation can be in the hands of one person. So just in closing then, David Carroll, what are the chances? We don't know, of course, but if you follow conservative media, which I do, <laughs> unfortunately, it's a part of my job, they're, they're just absolutely over the moon at the prospect of Trump coming back. And they seem to think it's almost certain that Elon Musk will bring back Donald Trump. And when Trump says he's not going to rejoin, well, of course he says that because his own ridiculous platform is going nowhere. But he can't admit that, I'm sure, given his ego. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite likely that uh, if Trump returns, that we would return to... Um, the the times you know before the pandemic basically if we can remember when trump tweets dominated the discourse and sucked the oxygen out of every conversation and um and then when he was banned from twitter we got our oxygen back to think and talk about other other things so again i'm i'm not sure how these moves create more freedom uh for other voices the end result may just be that Musk and Trump dominate the discourse, and that's their power play. Well, I thank you for joining us uh, here today, uh, David Carroll, and we'll stay in touch as this uh, media landscape seems to be going further in the direction that Obama just warned us about last Thursday. It's a whiplash, yep. Th thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Carroll, who's a professor of media design at the New School and director of its Design and Technology MFA program, which explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry, and education. And his research and analysis examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media, and journalism. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into the right-wing project underway too, as Steve Bannon suggested Deconstruct the administrative state. Every time you get a message. 
Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Gostin, the Director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and University Professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization's Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board and is the author of the new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future. And he has an article at the New York Times, No matter how you feel about masks, you should be alarmed by this judge's decision. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Goston. Thank you, Ian. It's lovely to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And the judge in question, of course, is Catherine Kimball Mazel, who was considered unqualified by the American Bar Association. She was chosen by the Federalist Society and nominated by President Trump and appointed by a Republican majority in the Senate. But given that the Justice Department is now appealing her decision, you're concerned that it's before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which six of the 11 judges are appointed by Trump. A loss there, I take it, would be catastrophic for American health. Yeah, I think it would. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the public really has a an appreciation of how um, influential tr- Trump appointees have been in in the in the judiciary. You know, he he just really it wasn't just that he appointed so many judges, and it wasn't just that he's appointed so many judges that were really so young that it's going to affect all of our lifetimes. Um, but also, you know, the judges that he appointed were really um, ideologically bent and hostile to government regulation, and in this case, health and safety regulation. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Judge Mazel was 33 years old when she was appointed. Um, Trump appointed her after he had lost the election. She was ratified on a strict party line vote. And uh, despite the fact that the American Bar Association uh, embarrassingly rated her unqualified. So this is the state of America we're in now. And we've got this incredible scenario where you have a single federal judge in the middle district of Florida striking down a CDC policy in a pandemic. Um, And she did it nationwide. Remarkable. And she did it on absolutely almost ridiculous legal reasoning Legal critics at the time of the ruling said that this was a ruling that a first-year law student would be embarrassed by. I mean, just explain to us the the absurdity of her view on sanitation and what it really means in CDC language. Yeah, so why she focused on the word sanitation, I'm not quite sure, because, you know, basically the Congress, through the Public Health Service Act, gave the CDC power... Um, to prevent the interstate and international transmission of infectious diseases. And then it listed a number of things that CDC could do, including um, sanitation, but not limited to it. And then said, or any other thing CDC deems necessary. That's pretty clear. Um, And yet she focused on sanitation. But even if she focused on the word sanitation, um, it makes no sense because the truth is, is that in in the 1940s, when the Public Health Service Act was enacted, the term sanitation was nearly equivalent to public health, was thought as a broad measure of hygiene. And I think this was a strained and narrow interpretation of a single word in a statute. Um, and just in, as you say, um, something that, you know, you wouldn't expect even from an essay from a, you know, a 
but Georgetown Law or other law student. Um, this is not something that um, is funny, though, because, you know, literally the CDC's transit mask mandate ended and was ended at the hands of a single federal district judge in Florida. Who not only has little legal experience and training, but uh, no medical experience and training. But I think, Lawrence, surely when we, both of us and many keep saying a Trump-appointed judge, Trump was clueless about just about everything. You remember, of course, he advised people to drink bleach and shine ultraviolet lights inside their body to combat COVID. He just takes a list of names from the Federalist Society and hands them over to Mitch McConnell. And that's the process. So what's the agenda of the Federalist Society in appointing these kind of judges to the federal bench? Well, you know, the Federalist Society is a you know conservative legal group, and its aim is to try to have some kind of interpretation of originalism in the courts. Um, and they put forward people with very skewed ideas about the nation's constitution. And in this case, it was a really skewed and tortured opinion by a judge that really was not very very, um, uh, competent because she literally never tried a case on her own when she was appointed for a lifetime tenure to um, the uh, district court in Florida. Um, And I don't mean to make this personal against her, but it just doesn't seem to make sense that any judge um, should be able to overrule CDC um, epidemiologists, virologists and other scientists that are trying to keep our country safe during a pandemic. So whatever you think about masks, you really should worry about this judge's decision. Because it goes beyond masks. It does, because it means, you know, if it were if it's upheld by the 11th Circuit and then ultimately by the Supreme Court, um, it really can eviscerate um, any federal power to protect health and safety. So this is this is public health. It's occupational health and safety. It's consumer protection. It's protection against uh, environmental hazards chemical hazards, you name it. And this is, um, you know, I think conservatives should be careful what they wish for, you know, because one day we're going to have a really major health crisis hit the United States and everyone, conservatives and, uh, and, and, and liberals alike, will look to the CDC and other federal health and safety agencies to protect them. And they'll find that these agencies have their hands tied behind their backs by the federal courts. And again, I'm speaking with Lawrence Gostin, who's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and university professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization's Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board and is the author of the new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future. And he has an article in the New York Times, No matter how you feel about masks, you should be alarmed by this judge's decision. Well, we already have a health emergency. We've lost about a million Americans from covid there's an uptick of it now in China, and of course, because of secrecy in China, we just don't know how bad it is, but it looks pretty bad. And new variants come along. You know, the last new variant was more virulent in terms of its spread, but wasn't as deadly. But who knows what the next variant will be. But getting back to the Federalists and the people who write the list that they hand to Trump and then Trump in turn hands it to Mitch McConnell and they push these people through and they push this woman through after Trump had lost the election in the lame duck period before the Democrats took over the Senate. So this is what I'm trying to focus on is, is the agenda, though, to 
as Stephen Bannon said, to deconstruct the administrative state. It's absolutely that. <laughs> There's no question about it. Federalist society has always been hostile to the administrative state. Um, and uh, now the courts are, including the Supreme Court. Um, you'll remember the Supreme Court struck down uh, OSHA's um, requirement to be tested or vaccinated um, to ensure a safe workforce. Um, so we're we're facing um, hostile judiciary in terms of, you know, protection of health, safety, and the environment. Um, and this is, you know, every American should really be worried about that. It's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, I don't really care about the federal bureaucracy or the administrative state. But what the administrative state does is it's it works with, you know, highly qualified scientists day in and day out to try to protect Americans um, and, you know, make it safer for all of us. And I don't think we would really want to live in a country where we didn't have strong federal and state agencies um, that are always looking uh, out for us and, and, and protecting our backs. Well, this is, seems to be what the agenda is. And does this mean, in a way, we know that conservatives in this country have been hostile to the New Deal and it's been chipped away at, and, you know, it's obviously had started in the Depression, and what was happening in the in the early in the Depression was absolutely disastrous conditions in this country with massive unemployment, people starving, families on the move, losing houses and trekking across the country. I mean, it was a traumatic time, and in order to get his hands around it, the president at the time, FDR, passed a lot of new laws to try and, you know, basically create a safety net because people were falling into massive poverty and homelessness. And, you know, it's bad enough now. We travel through the streets of our major cities and see these homeless encampments. Well, multiply that by thousands. And that's what was happening back then. And the Supreme Court at the time kept striking down all of his initiatives to solve the problem. And are we going back to that pre-FDR era, to a Supreme Court that has the power to basically decide what should be being decided by both presidents and Congress? Absolutely. There's no question about that. Um, you know, we do, you do, you know, you, you do see really shades of pre, you know, of the FDR era. Um, when the courts were obstructing everything that he tried to do. Um, you know, and this is, you know, relatively recent. We haven't seen anything like this for quite some time. Um, and But we're starting to see it um, with quite a fury. So in other words, unelected judges accrue to themselves more power than the executive and the legislative branch. In other words, this is a... In terms of our separation of powers, this is a power grab by the, the judicial branch. I think you could see it that way. I mean, they are really stepping on the toes of, you know, democratically elected officials. You know, the, um, there, there, is a, there, there is a really strong sense that, they, that the, the courts are really not going to let federal agencies do their job. And remember, you know, you know, we this is relatively recent, you know, as as you know, as you know, LBJ you know, is war on poverty, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. Um, then then John F. Kennedy's, you know, ask not, you know, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You know, and the great society. Um, he, the problem is, is that we've really lost the tradition of the common good. It's all about me now and not, you know, what are my rights rather than what are my responsibilities for, a, you know, a, a well-regulated, safe and humane society. And we're seeing that slip away. Well, it does seem that these conservative judges and the federalists are 
at war with democracy and that they're enthralled with plutocracy. You know, we see what Russia's like with a corrupt oligarchy. Are we heading in that direction? I mean, it's, I don't know whether I'm making a, a stretch here, but this particular judge, Catherine Kimball Mazel, this unqualified judge down in Florida, appointed by Trump and chosen by the Federalists, her husband is, is a partner in this new private equity company that Jared Kushner has just formed, and he's gotten $2 billion from Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi dictator who murdered the Washington Post journal and had him dismembered, or at least ordered the murder. And Biden recently has been trying to call him on the phone to tell him to help you know, pump more oil to lower the cost to the American consumer because of inflation, and he, they won't even take his phone calls. So I'm not saying that she's responsible for her husband's behavior, but it just feels to me that this is a different America this is a this is an America where very few powerful people. Where today, where the richest man in the world is buying Twitter to put Trump back on the on Twitter. So this is what troubles me, uh, Lawrence, is that I see this as an attack on democracy, and, and by default or by design, it enables plutocracy. Well, you know, I you know I see I I, I see where you're going, and I do agree with it. I wouldn't say that, you know, we're anything like, you know, Putin's Russia. Um, you know, we still have a relatively free press and um, we still have do have strong institutional guardrails. Um, but I do think that the courts are overreaching. Um, and I do think that we need and deserve as a country uh, a, you know, a federal agencies that are there that, you know, look after us every day. Um, and I do see all that withering away. And that's a very sad day for the United States. Well, Lawrence Garson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's lovely to be with you. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Garston, who's the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and university professor at Georgetown University. He directs the World Health Organization Center on National and Global Health Law and serves on the National Cancer Advisory Board and is the author of the new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future. And he has an article in the New York Times, No matter how you feel about masks, you should be alarmed by this judge's decision. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the ramifications of the recent Supreme Court decision that Puerto Ricans don't have constitutional rights to some federal benefits. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christina Ponce-Kraus, who is a professor of legal history at Columbia Law School, raised in Puerto Rico. She writes about the constitutional history of America's territorial expansion and the political status of Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. And she's the co-editor of Foreign in a Domestic Sense, Puerto Rico, American Expansion, and the Constitution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christina Ponce Kraus. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And this recent eight to one opinion, which was written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh of the Supreme Court, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's actually quite a cruel decision. A man who had essentially spent most of his life in New York uh, had a stroke and he was on SSI, a disability, and he was getting his payments. And then when he moved to Puerto Rico, uh, eventually SSI found out that he'd moved to Puerto Rico, and because there's different rules for American citizens in Puerto Rico and American citizens in on the mainland, he not only did he have his benefits cut, in 2017, SSI sued him for over $28,000, claiming that he has to pay back his SSI benefits. And in Puerto Rico, there's an alternative to SSI called AABD. 
it pays out an average of $82 per month compared to the $574 per month that the average SSI recipient received in fiscal year 2020. So you're from Puerto Rico. The Supreme Court is saying you're a second-class citizen. Uh, unfortunately, Puerto Ricans have been second-class citizens since the United States annexed Puerto Rico in 1898. So that part isn't news. And you described it as a cruel decision. And I do have to say that the court didn't spend a lot of time discussing the issues. It treated it as a very easy decision. But the fact of the matter is that what's cruel is territorial status itself. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It can be treated differently by Congress. Puerto Ricans uh, don't have representation in the federal government. They have no senators. They have one non-voting representative, and they can't vote for the president either. They are totally unrepresented in Washington, except for one non-voting person in the House. Uh, so they have uh, no political power and no way to change their second-class status. And what the court did here was confirm what we all know, which is that Puerto Rico is a second-class class jurisdiction in the United States. Um, we can't really blame the court for it. Uh, we, have to, we have to blame uh, Puerto Rico's status as a U.S. territory and Congress's failure to provide for decolonization for Puerto Rico. That's what's truly cruel here. Well, there's also a place right at the heart of America and its government, known as the District of Columbia, that also doesn't have the rights some rights, not as bad as Puerto Rico, but still, D.C. doesn't have a lot of rights, right? Absolutely. I agree that D.C.'s situation is unacceptable as well. Uh, the uh, residents of D.C. can vote in presidential elections, but they don't have senators, and they also have one non-voting representative. So they, too, have a subordinate status. There are some differences between D.C.'s and Puerto Rico's status. But I think both of them are unacceptable. I, I think any U.S. citizen living under U.S. sovereignty should have full representation. So I think that uh, both circumstances are unacceptable. Uh, when it comes to SSI, Puerto Rico's circumstance is worse because it is excluded, whereas D.C. is not. So why is it then that the Democrats don't make it the number one priority to make Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. states. I mean, we already know that in about 20 years, 70% of the, the Senate will be controlled by the red rural states. So there's a built-in mechanism that both at the Senate level and, of course, by extension, the Supreme Court level that favors these small red states. So the only way that the Democrats can have a level playing field, they, already, they have to have 8% more votes than the Republicans just to break even under our current system, and it's getting worse for them. So what we're talking about here today is a clarion cry for why the Democrats should make Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. states. Well, I agree with you. And what's, uh, I, I, I agree with you that the way that the Senate is structured is unfair and undemocratic, so uh, there's a lot of reform that this uh, supposed democracy uh, could use. But when it comes to Puerto Rico and D.C. statehood in particular, there is uh, in Puerto Rico a lot of uh, disagreement among Puerto Ricans about whether Puerto Rico should be a state or not. So uh, a majority of Puerto Ricans did vote for statehood in November of 2020. Puerto Rico has had a series of plebiscites and then a referendum in November of 2020. And statehood came out ahead. But it came out ahead with 52.5% of the vote. So not an overwhelming majority, though a clear majority. Uh, the fact that a substantial minority opposes statehood has slowed the process in Congress to a near halt. It is really, really difficult to get Congress to take action to change the status of the territories. Again, they don't have political representation, so they aren't voting constituents who can put pressure on Congress to change their situation. Um, and so if Puerto Ricans are divided among themselves, that makes it even harder to accomplish something that's already very hard, which is to get Congress's attention to the status of the territories. So 
uh, I think a lot of people thought that when statehood won the November 2020 referendum in Puerto Rico, and at the same time, Democrats took Congress and the White House, this was our chance. The Democrats would make it happen. Uh, but unfortunately, I think that uh, it was just very difficult for the Democrats who saw that the obvious solution to Puerto Rico's status, uh, I feel this way, is statehood. Uh, it was very difficult for them to go up against some of the Congress people uh, who are themselves of Puerto Rican descent and have Puerto Rican constituents who oppose statehood. Uh, so that's the problem when it comes to Puerto Rico. When it comes to D.C., an overwhelming majority of residents of D.C. support statehood, but a large majority of Americans, according to uh, polling other Americans, oppose D.C. statehood. I am not among them. Uh, I think a lot of the opposition comes from people who want to maintain entrenched power uh, among the red states. Uh, I think the opposition obviously comes from Republicans more than Democrats, and it's unfortunate that Democrats haven't been able to overcome it. But when it comes to Puerto Rico, it's it's complicated because of divisions in Puerto Rico. And my own view is that Congress should anyway offer Puerto Rico statehood. And this is what I've written about and what I've testified on. Um, but it's been very, very difficult to get a, a process going in Congress that would end Puerto Rico's status and put it on the path to statehood or independence, if that's what it's going to be. And again, I'm speaking with Christina Ponce Kraus, who's a professor of legal history at Columbia Law School, raised in Puerto Rico. She writes about the constitutional history of American territorial expansion and the political status of Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. And she's the co-editor of Foreign in a Domestic Sense, Puerto Rico, American Expansion and the Constitution. So given this ruling that just happened and this this man has had a stroke losing his SSI payments, what is the motive and what is the reasoning for why Puerto Ricans oppose statehood? What's their reasoning? Well, uh, Puerto Ricans uh, have been divided because there are many who are concerned with the impact of statehood upon Puerto Rico's culture. They're afraid that if Puerto Rico becomes a state, then its language will be eroded and its culture will be eroded. I'm among those who feel that Puerto Rico can be a state and preserve its Spanish language and preserve its culture. And I think Puerto Ricans should step up, vote for statehood and prove that one can become a state and not lose uh, what one speaks or who one is. But there's uh, been a lot of uh, fear uh, among Puerto Ricans promoted by political leaders who themselves resist statehood. Um, and, uh, and that's been very difficult to overcome. There have also been economic interests that benefit from the status quo. Uh, Puerto Rico does have certain exemptions from federal taxes. Most famously, uh, Puerto Ricans are residents of Puerto Rico, rather, are exempt from federal income taxes unless they work for the federal government. Uh, and there have also been uh, tax loopholes that corporations benefit from in Puerto Rico. But anyone who has seen Puerto Rico's financial crisis unfold, Puerto Rico is currently in a financial crisis. It is effectively, it has declared bankruptcy. Um, it, uh, anyone who's seen this situation knows that these tax gimmicks have not in the end resulted in a viable economic situation for Puerto Rico. Uh, moreover, uh, Puerto Rico is poorer than the poorest state. So there are very many Puerto Ricans who wouldn't have to pay income taxes even if Puerto Rico were a state. Um, and that's, uh, that's the kind of information that Puerto Ricans need to have so that they can make an informed decision with respect to statehood. Um, and it's been very difficult to get accurate information to Puerto Ricans about the consequences of statehood. Well, I recall with the devastation of those two hurricanes, I indelibly remember seeing Donald Trump tossing paper towels to a group of people and that it had the worst kind of whiff of colonial arrogance. How did it strike you? Well, it struck me the same way. It was an awful expression of colonial arrogance. Uh, uh, of course, uh, in my view, President Trump uh, was offensive in so many ways that I lost count a long time ago. That was one of them. He, he proudly embraced an arrogant uh, imperial stand toward Puerto Rico. Uh, but Puerto Ricans uh, themselves have rejected their colonial status over and over. So even those who 
resist statehood, insist that Puerto Rico's status needs to be improved, that uh, Puerto Rico needs increased autonomy, and that Puerto Ricans should have equal rights and equality under the law, for example, by enjoying uh, equality in federal benefits, such as through SSI. Um, so Puerto Ricans of all political stripes reject their colonial status. Um, it's just that they disagree with each other about what the best way forward is. So, Christina Ponce Kraus, back to the 8-1 to one ruling written by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The one's ascending voice was uh, Sotomayor, and she said that because residents of Puerto Rico do not have voting representation in Congress, they cannot rely on their elected representatives to remedy the, unpunish- the punishing disparities suffered by citizen residents of Puerto Rico under Congress's unequal treatment. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, isn't it possible that this ruling could have other dramatic consequences? Uh, in other words, residents here in the United States could be targeted in states like Vermont, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, and Alaska uh, on the basis that residents in those states pay less into the federal treasury than residents of other states. So absolutely. The decision, the opinion for the court by Justice Kavanaugh ended with a footnote saying nothing we say here implies anything about what Congress could or could not do with respect to a state. But as the oral argument made clear, when Congress discriminates with respect to monetary benefits, the courts apply rational basis review. That is, they review such classifications deferentially. And so it is simply the case that Congress could classify Uh, with respect to a state, not just a territory, with respect to monetary benefits and say, for example, this or that state doesn't contribute as much to the federal treasury as some other state does, and rational basis review would apply to that. Now, my guess is that if a court were presented with that situation, it would treat as, uh, uh, it would treat a state uh, in a different way that it does a territory, even if it applied rational basis review. I'm not so sure that a court would uphold that kind of discrimination, uh, whereas with a territory, the court is quite quick to uphold that kind of discrimination, as this case exemplifies. But uh, I think Justice Sotomayor is right that the court's reasoning here would apply to states as well. That is, rational basis review would apply, and one can certainly imagine arguments Congress could make to support such discrimination, such as this or that state doesn't contribute sufficiently to the federal treasury. But isn't this totally hypocritical in terms of the conservatives and the Republicans, the majority on the court and those in the Senate who put them on the court along with the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump. We just, early in the program, we were just talking about the appalling ruling by Judge Mazzell down in Florida who It's completely unqualified as far as the ABA is concerned, yet she was able to make incredibly important policy with one ruling, getting rid of the CDC's mask mandate, and that the real agenda of these conservatives is to deconstruct the administrative state, as as Steve Bannon has said, and uh, they've already gone after OSHA, and now they're going after the CDC. But when you look at Shelby County versus Holder, the decision that... uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, uh, when they struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the court's Republican majority at that point determined in Selby County that Congress generally cannot treat different states differently. So, hello? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Hello? Yes. No, I'm saying oh. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I was making a joke. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> no, I'm yeah, I'm, I, I'm being I, sarcastic. In other words, I what <laughs> is what's going on? Yeah, uh, hello is right. So um, the equal sovereignty principle that the court articulated in Shelby County was made up. It is, of course, the case that states are supposed to be equal. Uh, under the Constitution, uh, and that they have an equal degree of sovereignty in the federal system, having delegated some of their power and retained the rest. But the idea that equal sovereignty of states operates as a bar on federal power is absolutely off 
the way that the court used it in Shelby County. There are very narrow circumstances in which the court uh, can, under the Constitution, hold that state sovereignty gets in the way of the federal government. Um, and this was not one of them. So the court took the idea of equal sovereignty and turned it into a doctrine that imposes a bar on the federal government. And at the same time, claimed we're not really treating it as a bar. That was certainly hypocritical. What the court would do with that concept going forward, uh, one can imagine. I uh, can certainly imagine the court citing it in a case involving discrimination against the state in terms of SSI benefits. If they cited it in Shelby County, they could trot it out here. And that would be one way to distinguish between denying a state SSI benefits and denying Puerto Rico SSI benefits, because a ter territory certainly doesn't have equal sovereignty. But the more important point is that Congress is not going to deny this or that state SSI benefits. And the reason is that states have two senators and several representatives representing their interests. And so they actually have a voice in Congress and can protect themselves, whereas Puerto Ricans don't have a voice in Congress if they reside in Puerto Rico and can't protect themselves from discrimination. So I think there are various ways in which this is not this, such discrimination. A, it's not likely to happen at all against the state. And B, if it did, I think the court could find its way to distinguishing a state uh, from Puerto Rico. I still do think that Justice Sotomayor was right, that the court's reasoning in Valle de Madero opens the door to an argument over whether this could also be done in a state. In fact, at oral argument, a number of the justices expressed concern over exactly that. But if such a case were actually to come before the court, my guess is the court would find a way to distinguish between a state and a territory because it's territories that lack political power and against which Congress can and always has discriminated. Well, Christina ponce Cras, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Christina ponce Cras, who's a professor of legal history at Columbia Law School, raised in Puerto Rico. She writes about the constitutional history of American territorial expansion and the political status of Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories. And she is the co-editor of Foreign in a Domestic Sense, Puerto Rico, American Expansion and the Constitution. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more light goes out